this is just too well established to go back to those old journalism rules of needing to stand in the middle and give both sides. The idea that there are both sides is a carefully cultivated lie. It's Maria from Cooler Earth, and this is Now What? A special season of our podcast where I'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who are doing the work and being very intentional about how they find new and engaging ways to communicate the challenges we currently face and just as importantly, the opportunities, ways forward and reasons for hope. This week on the podcast, I'm chatting with John Schwartz. He's a science writer for the New York Times focusing on climate change. John has been writing for The Times since 2000 and has covered law, technology, the space program, infrastructure, and more. He also shows up occasionally in The Times Book Review, Science Times, and the Arts section, and writes a humor column for the business section's Mutual Funds Quarterly. We are going to have to excuse a little bit of the audio quality this week since John is joining us directly from The Times headquarters in Manhattan. Uh, which is a little bit noisy, so we've had a a bit of a technical difficulty this week. Uh, But nonetheless, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Of course. Let's start right at the beginning. What drove you to pursue journalism as a career? Well, sure. Um, I got into journalism uh, for the reasons a lot of people get into journalism. I couldn't um, I was I, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with telling stories. I I uh, I got the bug um, from the time I was in first grade and created a newspaper for my first grade class. So you know, there's no there's no inspiration. It's not like I saw all the president's men and decided I had to be either Woodward or Bernstein. Uh, though I did see all the presidents men, right? It it was just a series of inspirations along the way, and the fact that um, when I wrote things, people responded well. That is, they said I understood that complicated thing. I uh, I liked what you wrote, uh, that sort of thing, and and I loved the idea of telling people something they didn't already know, and so um, um, at the times. I've been here for, as you say, I've been here, uh, this year will be 19 years. And in that time, I've covered uh, science and technology and legal affairs, uh, some environmental stuff. Uh, As a science writer, I've covered the space program um, and went to shuttle launches. I've, for the last uh, five years, I've been involved very heavily with our climate coverage as we built up our team of people covering climate change, its implications, uh, policy, and uh, all sorts of other elements of it. Covering climate change as a journalist is very challenging, as with reporting on science more generally. This has come up in the podcast throughout um, a a few episodes, as there seems to be spikes of coverage when new reports come out and the media picks up on some sound bites or headlines from them, but then it kind of stops there. How do you begin to think about new ways of covering the science while engaging the audience in in different and innovative ways? Well, part of what you try to do is move beyond covering the study of the day as the news of the day. You look for a way to go beyond just writing about what this individual study says. Now that, you know, so, so that, yes, these studies are important and they're shedding new light, but a single study doesn't tell you that much about the world. 
Um, and so, uh, and so you try to provide context, but you also look for ways to take that study, maybe not the first day, because you don't have all the time in the world, but you take that study and you go somewhere where that, um, where that can be, where the, the problem you're writing about can be illustrated and you talk to people and you, um, and you tell it instead of just doing a report on a report, you're telling a story. So to give you an example of, of uh, how I did that um, last summer, for example, um, I went to Iceland and wrote about the dwindling puffin populations and how the puffins, they're not endangered yet, but they're, they're strongly in decline in almost every one of their environments. And some of that is climate change and some of it is hunting and some of it is uh, our, our natural factors we might not understand, but to which climate change is probably linked. But, um, but I told the story through the lives of a couple of researchers who had come together on, um, on an island north of Greenland that touches the Arctic Circle, Grimsey. And uh, where they were spending all this time grabbing puffins out of their burrows, banding them, studying them, uh, attaching uh, a transponder to them so that their movements and migrations could be tracked uh, electronically. And so what I was trying to do was both entertain, show the absolute dedication of scientists to um, work hard and endlessly to to learn new things, and then uh, and then wrap it all into the broader story of climate change, and that's those are the satisfying stories, where you're taking some science, human beings, places, and pulling it all together. You haven't asked about this, but one of the things that um, that journalists hear a lot from climate activists and from conservative um, bomb throwers, you know, the people who want to say that, you're, that, that climate coverage is stupid, is you shouldn't be flying. If you care about the environment, you shouldn't be flying. And, uh, and I hear it from the environmental left, and I hear it from the right. It's like, from the right, it's, you know, like, what a hypocrite you are. You say the earth is warming, but you, but you don't limit your, your plane flights. Um, and while I understand the point of view that this is, that this has a terrible carbon footprint, the idea that by doing a little travel, I can reach a place where I can illustrate a problem. And because I have gone to this extra effort, I can reach more people and show them these things in a way that they might never have seen it before. I th I think I think that's worth doing. You know, we you know, we have my my colleague Henry Fountain went to um is doing a series of stories on disappearing glaciers. And he's done two of the stories so far. One took him to Kazakhstan, another took him to Switzerland. And the stories are are brilliant and they talk about the problem and the urgency of the problem and very realistically talk about how these people in these places are planning for the problems and how they know what's going on, being there made a big difference. 
So anyway, that wasn't a question you asked, but it's a question I answered. <laughs> no, I definitely think that it's a very important point, and it goes back to the environmentalist dilemma. It's the fact that by living in the world as it is right now, we are all having some sort of carbon footprint. And this work is all about trade-offs and identifying what trade-offs are worth it. Um, I actually love that story in Kazakhstan. It was done with a series of gorgeous visuals, and the drone footage was pretty incredible. The drone stuff was amazing, right? And that's and that's and that's you know, and that's Ben, um, the the photographer, and he's amazing. And you know, and and this stuff, I mean, gee, you so you grab somebody, you grab them by the eyeballs, and then you write the hell out of the thing so that they say, "Oh, I didn't know that." And all of a sudden, somebody's paying attention to a climate change story. I don't need to reach the activists. They already care. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that is one big challenge right now, that we need to broaden the pool of people that are having this conversation. As you say, the people already engaged in the issue are many of whom already are aware of the problem um, and know about the solution. So we need to find ways to engage others outside of that um, audience. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually fits into my next question, which is regarding the Times' use of multimedia within the stories. Uh, you guys are doing pretty incredible stuff with visuals and creative displays of information. Was this an intentional pivot the New York Times made to be more visual in its reporting on climate change? Um, and what do you think is the effect it has had on doing so? Well, that all started about three and a half years ago with the decision, first of all, five years ago, the editors of the Times said, we are going to, nearly five years ago, they said, we are going to reinvigorate our climate coverage. We're going to build a team of people who will write about climate, climate change and the problems, and that will be their jobs. We had had a green pod some years before, and the management decided that, that, the, uh, that the reporting and the stories had gotten a little stale, and so... They kept the reporters that were doing the the great work, um, Justin Gillis, Andy Revkin. Um, they kept those people, but they dismissed the pod and redistributed those people around the newsroom. So a lot of the coverage continued, the best stories continued, but there were fewer stories. There was less of the sort of padding from, well, we're doing this story because we've got people to do the stories. The paper got a lot of criticism for getting rid of that pod. And uh, and it certainly, I would have liked to have seen them find a, a different way to do it. But in fact, during that time, we were still covering climate change and Justin was still doing his amazing work. And then they said, you know, we really need to beef up our coverage. This is, this is um, the story of our time and we need to put more into it. And so that team was built and I was part of it. And after about a year, they said, we need to take an even more visual approach. And so in a, in a really smart and interesting move, they appointed to head the whole thing, Hannah Fairfield. Hannah is the climate editor for, for the Times. She runs this team. Um, she came from the world of graphics, and she was chosen because of her fantastic ability to lead big projects and to um, bring about startling visual presentation of data and other kinds of information, do data visualization, do maps that tell you something to 
to use all the tools of graphics and presentation to make this stuff come alive. Because, because look, climate change is difficult and technical, but much of it can be rendered understandable with the right graphical assist. You know, we we uh, we had this piece last year. How much warmer is it in your hometown than when you were born? And it was a it, it's so deceptively simple. Enter your town, enter the date you were born, and then all of this data goes to work, and you see how much warmer the town is in your lifetime, all over the world. Thirty five hundred, I think, thirty five hundred cities around the world. That's a that's just a wonderfully simple way to take a complex topic and make it real for people. So um, the decision to put Hannah in charge, I mean, it was, it changed everything. And it meant that we were going to be, and, and she will say, not every story has to be visual. Not every story needs, you know, a drone flying overhead. But if it's a story that will benefit from those resources, we are going to use them. There's a story you wrote recently called Will We Survive Climate Change, where you talk about the tendency of people to use doomsday scenarios in covering climate change. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know how you personally navigate this need to convey the very real and shocking impacts of climate change happening already, while still embedding some hope into the story, so readers realize that as bad as the situation is, there's still something we can do and that really giving up or saying we're doomed should not be our response. Well, the first principle of all of this is to get the story right. So um, I know there's a lot of discussion in climate science communication about what should our, you know, what should the, what should the orientation be? What should the, not the spin, but you know what I mean. You know, do I give hope? Do I scare people? Benjamin Wallace Wells, who wrote the, um, who has the new book out, The Uninhabitable Earth, and did that piece in New York Magazine that got people so upset a couple of years ago, he says straight out, I'm out to scare people because fear will motivate people to do things. Um, and in order to get there, he uses, uh, he assembles the most extreme examples. Well, that's his approach. I try to in all my work, take the most accurate assessment of the information, the data, what people tell me. And when I talk to climate scientists, especially what strikes me is not their sense of hopelessness. The people who know the most about this are the ones who are at many levels still hopeful despite everything, because they understand how we got here and they understand that it's possible to remediate or mitigate up to a point. They are frustrated at the lack of action, but they don't talk about being doomed. They don't talk about going off a cliff in 12 years irretrievably. They talk about sliding down a slope that conceivably you could drag yourself back up. Now, they also fully acknowledge that there's inertia in the system, that carbon dioxide once in the atmosphere is there for hundreds of years, that the damage we're still doing today will be with us for quite some time. But their point is hopelessness doesn't get you anywhere. And um, hope tempered with this frustration that they feel can lead to action. And so I wrote that piece not 
to not to provide spin on the problem, but to reflect what these climate scientists have been saying to me for years. And so I don't go into it saying, you know, what what can I, you know, how can I spin this to give the most useful interpretation? It's like, what are these people saying? What are the smartest people I know saying about all this? There's long been a debate over whether climate change deniers should be given a space to voice their arguments in lieu of fairness. But now that we have scientific consensus, that just seems like spreading misinformation. I'm curious to know how you think about journalists' responsibility when covering an issue such as climate change and how you make sense of this need to present both sides of a story or an argument. Well, that's a great, that's a great question, and it's an important question, and it's one that I feel at the New York Times we've resolved. Um, for a number of years. When I came back, you know, when, when we rebuilt the climate team, one of the things that we sat down and talked about was what is our role when it comes to these stories about the science underlying climate change? Do we need to make it make a call to Heartland Institute and see what their, you know, what their experts say about climate change not being real, not being that bad, whatever? And the answer is no. That that the fact of anthropogenic climate change is so well established that there are no two sides to it. And so there is no obligation to, uh, to quote someone as you might in an area where there's genuine honest disagreement. For instance, if I'm gonna talk about nuclear power, I'm gonna quote a lot of sides. Because there's a real ongoing and, and reasonable debate over the role of nuclear in a post in a decarbonizing world, right? I mean, what is the role of natural gas in a decarbonizing world? It, it has its advantages. It certainly helped us get off of coal. But holy cow, look at what methane does in the atmosphere for the first 80 years. All of that, right? Definitely. I think those are the debates that we need to be moving on to right now around how we will achieve a decarbonized economy once we all agree on the fact that we do actually need to do that. Yeah, right. Those are debates. Those are, and so if, and if you're going to do an honest job of, of telling the story, you're going to talk to people on a lot of sides of those discussions. But is climate change happening? Are humans involved? I don't have to call somebody about gravity. I don't have to call somebody about whether you know, oxygen is essential for something to burn. This is just too well established to um, to go back to those old journalism rules of needing to stand in the middle and give both sides. The idea that there are both sides is a carefully cultivated lie. Yes, it is a lie pushed by a well-organized and very well-funded group of special interests in this country, which has also fed into the into the politicization of the issue of climate change. But I also have to ask you about the current political climate and discourse about the media. When there is someone in the most powerful office in this country calling an institution like the New York Times fake news, how do you see this moment in time and navigate the pressing need to communicate science and facts in a way that is not political and is most definitely not fake news? Well, we have to, we have to discuss the politics. You know, when Donald Trump says something that's provably false, and uh, we have written many, many stories that fact check him, 
and that point out that whenever it gets cold, he's going to do some sort of global warming treat, uh, and that he repeats these things as as shtick. You know, it's he's he's like a he's like an insult comic in those ways, and so we discuss the politics. It's part of what we do, but we don't do it in a political way. I think that's a disappointment to some people who would like us to kick him around. But, you know, we're we're not columnists. We're not opinion writers. You don't need to hold an opinion to say he's wrong about this. Um, the, the, the science is there and the science says he's wrong. And the fact that he repeats it over and over is a fact that you should report. So that's not hard. Uh, and when he attacks us, you know, he doesn't attack our climate coverage. He attacks our coverage of him. And so I don't have to be out there on the firing line next to Maggie Haberman taking all the abuse. It is a highly politicized area. Anything you write is going to be attacked from many sides, uh, attacked from the environmental left for not doing enough, for not saying enough, attacked from the right. And, you know, and if you go on Twitter, it's very hard to tell who's a real person and who's a bot. But anything you write will be... Um, will be flamed. Having said that, your job as a reporter is to read and listen and figure out where the actual arguments are in those criticisms and find find the valid criticism in all of that mess. We had a tweet over the weekend that talked about the potential expense of the Green New Deal and that many seasoned political observers said it's going to cost more than Congress is willing to spend, and it won't correct the problems in the 10 years that some of its backers say is needed. Uh, hundreds of people interpreted that tweet as saying, let's not do anything, and and treated it as an expression, as one person said, of the views of our corporate masters. I run the NYT Climate account on Twitter, and I went in and I said, this is anything but a call for action. It only says that this is hard. And, you know, and, and I'm not going to change your interpretation here. That's fine. But please understand that we have a team of people who cover climate change all the time. Here's where to find our stories. Here's what we do. To which many dozens of people said, F you. Because that's, because it's Twitter. Because it's Twitter. <laughs> yes, the age of social media has definitely changed the way we communicate. Today, news never really stops with the 24-hour news cycle and constant exchanges on Twitter and other platforms. I'm curious to hear how you think this has impacted or changed the way you report on things uh, for the worse or for the better. It turns journalism into much more of a conversation. And each of us has what a novel I liked back in the 1980s called A Baby Bathwater Algorithm. You know the phrase, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Well, how do you pro how do you create an algorithm that recognizes what's baby and what's bathwater? Um, and so that act of pattern recognition is something that humans are actually capable of if they have critical faculties. You know, we, we bemoan the fact that, that there's not a lot of critical thinking, and so someone shows up at Ping Pong Comet Pizza with a gun because they just believe something they read online. But most of us, most of us can read through a lot of comments and figure out which ones make sense. Going back to that point about people criticizing the, the tweet, 
you know, I recognize from that, yeah, we should have, there should have been a second tweet in that series saying, uh, this is not money to be spent. It's an investment in the future that will pay for itself and is certainly less expensive than the cost of the damage as described. You know, there, there, there's always a better way to do this. And so if you don't just curl up in a defensive crouch or start screaming at people or say they were mean to me, you learn and say, you know, next time I could say it this way. Right. I think that that openness and avenues for feedback when they are legitimate can be constructive and further the, the conversation, which now opens up a new space to discuss solutions and ways forward that have addressed the problem and the scale of it. Right. And the now what is really important and solutions are really important. And again, once you start talking about those solutions, you will be attacked for the ones that you talk about. Because if you do a story that looks um, appraisingly at carbon capture and sequestration, there are people who will say that is a useless imaginary technology that just allows people to think they can keep pumping carbon dioxide into the air. And it's just a, it's a mythical techno fix. But, you know, the IPCC has said this needs to be developed and we need to be putting money into it to see if it can be. Because slowing down carbon dioxide emissions is not enough. We need to decarbonize. Well, it's my job to say that. <laughs> it's my job to say the IPCC said that. And it's, and then, you know, and then if somebody wants to say I'm pursuing a speculative, you know, techno fix and therefore I'm evil, I, I can't help that interpretation. But that conversation is really important because many of the people who are involved in the conversation have expertise and have interesting things to say. I have read the comments on my stories at what, an hour after the story goes up and see an angle on the story that I either left unclear or didn't address and could have addressed. And I'll sit down with my editor and say, you want a couple of paragraphs about this? And he'll say, yeah. Yeah, why don't we do that? And I will adapt the story to reflect the conversation. So, you know, so your point, you know, when you ask, what has this done? I would say, except for the frustration part, it's it's improved it because I'm not I'm not just a broadcaster and I'm not you know I'm not an oracle on high I'm a person trying to find the truth and the people who are reading me are on a good day helping me along and when it's not legitimate you apply your baby bathwater algorithm and you see and you look at the fact that the people saying all these horrible angry things have 13 followers and names with lots of numbers in them. And you say, okay, this is somebody's campaign against us. These are not real people. But this over here, this is a real person. You know, and sort of you sort of look for the you look for the the wheat in the chaff. All that all those bad analogies. And finally, um, I want to hear what makes you hopeful or optimistic about the future. Well, we beat the Nazis. We did. We formed a coalition of governments. We, we, you know, we fought and we, and we ended that war. I don't like everything we did, but we took 
amazing, massive action, and we did it. Within the United States alone, we sent, we sent people to the moon. Incredible technical challenge, unbelievably expensive. We did that. We built an interstate highway system. We did that. You know, we, we as, a, as a planet, we eliminated smallpox. We haven't eliminated polio yet, but, um, but, you know, the elimination of smallpox was a scientific achievement. It was, it was based on a methodology that was applied in difficult circumstances in difficult parts of the world, and it worked. And so to me, we do amazing things when we realize we absolutely have to do it. And um, yes, there is still a resistance to these ideas, but I think if you look at the numbers from the Yale Center on Climate Change Communication, you see that the numbers are turning around bit by bit. If you look at the demographics of uh, climate change understanding, I don't, I don't like saying climate change belief, but climate change understanding, then you see that younger people get it, even if older people don't. So combine that with my belief, having talked to a lot of climate scientists, that that 12 years isn't a cliff, it's a slope. And you see the demographics turning around and the seriousness of the situation coming forward. And so there's a chance. There's a chance to get it right. There are technologies that can help get us there. I believe very strongly in our ability to discover technologies, and then scale them up and drive the cost down. Solar panels were ridiculously expensive when they were first developed. Now they're cheap. You know, now you, now you generate power from, from the sun cheaper than, uh, in some cases, cheaper than you could from coal. I believe in the creativity that leads to new technologies, and I believe in the persistence and iterative mania of engineers and technologists to make this a little better, a little better, a little better. And so I remain cautiously optimistic that my grandchildren will grow up in a world that is doing better on this stuff than, than I am, than, than my world is. Also, I think my grandchildren are smarter than me. Yeah, for sure. I think also younger generations have grown up in a time that was after this whole debate about whether or not human-caused climate change was real or was happening. And so it's led to this mass mobilization of young people around the world that are demanding action and no longer really questioning the facts around this issue because this is their lives. I think you're right about that. I think that's absolutely true. John, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. It's a pleasure talking with you. And I look forward to continue following your work and reading your brilliant pieces um, in The Times. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's great talking with you. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please share it with friends and colleagues. And don't forget to give us a rating wherever you're listening. <laughs>